Good morning. <clears throat> it is a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, if you're guests, welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. And if you're a member, know that we love you. You know, one of the things in the Celestine family is that we have a lot of um, uh, comedians, and my sons are comedians. And uh, <laughs> one of the things they do is make fun of me uh, and reenact every time when I get up in the pulpit. So Silas got up one time, and he's showing how I walk up the steps, and, and I greet you guys, and word for word, and, and, and he gets behind the pulpit, and he does this. And I'm like, dude, I don't do that, right? So, <laughs> <that's> what, <laughs> so they make fun of me, right? So, so I have to change things up a little bit, right? I think it's, to, I, I'm in a routine of saying the same thing over and over when I get up here, so um, for the sake of, of me not, uh, my son's not making fun of me, I might have to change things up a little bit, um, but it's all good. Um, but just know that we love you guys, um, we, we're praying deeply for you guys, um, let us know what we can do to help you. You know, this is the beauty of the church. We're together. We learn together. We do things together. Uh, we suffer together. We rejoice together. So know this. You're not in this alone. You're not in this life alone. God has blessed you with a church to be able to pray with you and love on you. So with that said, turn in your Bibles to First uh, Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. When you've arrived to the text, say word. Can you please stand? We stand out of reverence to God's holy and righteous word. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and a lover of money. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, again, we are thankful for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the gifts that you've given the local church. You've given the local church leaders to be able to lead the church, God. Um, and God, we are thankful that the head of the church is Christ. It is not the pastor or elders or deacons or servants in the church. It is Jesus who is the nourishing head the leading head. So God, our desire is to just do what you ask us to do. We don't have to reinvent the will. All we have to do is follow what scripture says, and this is our desire. Our desire is to know scripture. So we ask, Holy Spirit, teach us what we do not know, make us what we are not, and give us what we do not have. And God's people says, amen, amen. We ask all this in Jesus' name, right? And we're thankful for what Jesus is doing. The title for today's sermon is A Call for Biblical Eldership, right? The Qualification of an Elder. And there are two parts to the sermon. We'll look at verses 2 through 3, and then uh, next week we'll look at the remaining verses pertaining to that of an elder. There are six qualifications that we will look at this morning and we will look at the last three next week. The importance of really living a Christian life is illustrated in the life of the famous author by the name of Mark Twain. Mark Twain, he basically blamed largely church leaders for the fact that he was not a Christian. He grew up in a Christian home. Uh, he was thankful for his mother, he believed, who lived a good Christian life. 
but the leaders in the church he saw major problems with. The same leaders were fine with having slaves and owned slaves. Uh, he had problems as well with the way that they would use scripture to justify uh, abusing people, abusing women. Um, and, and he had a major issue with those leaders. They would say one thing in the pulpit, but then when they would be out in the world, they would live completely different. He saw it as hypocrisy. And he was tremendously disturbed by that. Now, in this world today, we are exposed to the same thing. Perhaps some of you, uh, you feel in your Christian walk that you are a little discouraged because of a, a leader. A leader that you probably used to go to the church and this is used, used to happen. And, and they did something to you. They did something that you felt was unbiblical. And that basically... Has hurt, you're hurting tremendously because of that, right? Now, we know people today who are not going to church because of situations like that. Now, I want to be clear. If a leader is standing on the word of God and you're hurt by this, that's not what I'm talking about here. But if they're not standing on the word of God, if they are being a hypocrite is what I am talking about here, right? So, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is dealing with. And he does not want the church of Ephesus to be such. He, he wants the leaders to set the pace. He wants the leaders to lead in a godly way. A lack of leaders mean, uh, meant a lack of process for Paul. If there's no leadership in the church, there is a lack of process Progress, I'm sorry. So, so here specifically, he is calling Timothy to set up leaders in the local church, elders and deacons for great progress, spiritual progress. So friends, don't miss this here. See for yourself what he is mentioning here. He, notice the first phrase. The first phrase is above reproach. He mentions that an elder should be above reproach. That word above reproach basically means he is not able to be held with no charges. In other words, you cannot arrest him spiritually. He is one who watches over his life spiritually. And this sets the pace for everything else that the Apostle Paul is going to mention. In other words, when he is above reproach, he will watch over his marriage. When he is above reproach, he will watch over his ministry. When he's above reproach, he will watch over his temperament, right? This is the most important thing here for the Apostle Paul. That this elder is one who watches over his life. So before he can watch over the church... He is responsible to watch over his soul. He is called to be holy. And later on, if you notice in verse 7, he's going to mention an, again above reproach, right? So he's above reproach with the church, within the church. He's above reproach outside of the church, in the worldly culture. He has a good reputation, right? So I, I need you to observe with me here. This morning, I want us to observe five qualifications of an elder that stem from the phrase above reproach. One, his marriage. He watches over his marriage. Two, his self-mastery. He is disciplined. 
in his spiritual walk. Not perfect, but disciplined. He spends time with God. His ministry for his temperament. And five, his handling of money. He cannot be one who loves money. So I pray that you are ready to dive into the word of God. I pray that you are ready to seek Christ. Friends, we are called to affirm elders and deacons in this local church, so please pay close attention. As we are doing this, notice this. These qualifications you must have in your life as well. Even if you feel, if you feel God is not calling you to be an elder, I would say, well, the first one in verse 1 where it says you must aspire to be an elder, that does not pertain to you. You must be able to teach. This is the, the office of a teacher, right? Um, that, is not, that does not pertain to you. But every other qualification here pertains to you. You're called to do that. You're called to nurture your relationship in your marriage. You are called to not be quarrelsome and gentle and not violent. You are called to manage your household. You're called not to be a drunkard, right? Every single one of us Christians. So, yes, we're, we're preaching. I'm preaching this, and I'm preaching this to elders, but I'm also preaching this to you. You are called to do this. An elder is a Christian. So, friends, notice me, point number one. Biblical elders must honor their marriages must honor their marriages notice me very carefully and see for yourself here what the text is saying in verse 2 therefore an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife now stop stop one second this is a very problematic text for a lot of people and a lot of churches what is paul really saying here and there are a plethora or three or four different views that people have when it concerns this phrase right here, a one-woman man. Now, notice me very carefully. The first is that some people believe that Paul is talking specifically about polygamy. He should not have more than one wife. So this is what Paul is talking about, more of the quantity of marriage rather than the quality of marriage is what they're saying. Now, I want you to observe with me that polygamy was a problem in Paul's culture. Definitely was. For example, we have in the dialogue with Trypho, a Jew, the second century Christian apologist Justin Martyr wrote, and this is what he mentions, imprudent and blind Jewish teach teachers who even till this time permit each man to have four or five wives. So that was a problem in Justin Martyr's time. It was. It was a problem in Paul's time as well. One Roman orator, this is what he stated, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. So polygamy was a problem. No doubt it was a problem. So is it here that the Apostle Paul is going against polygamy. There's no doubt he is going against polygamy. We know this according to other passages of Scripture. And here, I would say, yes, he is. But Paul is more, he's not focused necessarily on the status of marriage rather than the quality of marriage. He's not just only focused on polygamy here, but he's focused on the quality of marriage because you can have one man who is married to one woman 
and still not be a one-woman man. Let me give you a perfect example of this. He can be married to this one woman and not be faithful to her. He could be married for 30 or 40 years, but he cheats on her on a consistent basis. Does not love her like he should love her. Does not cherish her like he should cherish her. This is why the Apostle Paul, I believe, is focused more on the quality of marriage than the quantity of marriage. Because if you deal with the quality, you will deal with the quantity. I I just want you to get this, right? Another view here is that he should not be remarried after divorce. So people will look at this text and says, a one woman man, that he should not be remarried after divorce. If he, if he divorces this person, then there's no way he can be remarried. He should not. Scripture is saying this. And, and, and scripture does not say that. This is not what the apostle Paul is alluding to here as well. We, we have other passages of scripture where Paul mentions that there is this permission to, to get remarried after divorce. He says, if you're married to an unbeliever and he asks for a divorce, then give it to him. Jesus in the gospel talks about how Moses gave the permission for, uh, for divorce as well. But it must be done, coming closer, coming closer. It must be done based on how scripture says, if there's unfaithfulness, This is how we we must approach this. So it's not just any kind of divorce where a man who's been with a woman and sees another woman and says, you know, I'm just going to leave you. I'm going to be with this other woman because I like her better. And all of a sudden he could be an elder. No, we have to take it case by case, right? That's not divorcing in in, in the right way, so-called. It's hard to say right way, right? There's nowhere a, a right way to divorce. But the Bible does mention the only reason that one should divorce is because of unfaithfulness. This is what I mean by that. So we have to be careful here as well, right? But Paul is not pertaining to the fact that if you are divorced, you cannot ever be an elder. We have to look at the situation case by case. There was another view that people have. They would say that if you or your spouse died, you cannot ever be remarried. And this is what they will look at this passage of scripture as and interpret it as. Like that's what Paul is saying. So if you're a widow, you are not called to be remarried at all. And if you're remarried, you're disqualified from being an elder. That's not what Paul is saying here. Well, how do you know this, Kevin? Because other passages of scripture... We have in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, he talks about widows who, who are widows, can be remarried. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, he says, a wife, is bound as long, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be remarried to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So here the apostle Paul is saying it's okay. So we know that the Apostle Paul is not focused primarily on polygamy. He's not focused on a man being divorced in a sense of him being divorced if his wife chooses to leave him. But what exactly is the Apostle Paul focused on here? The quality of marriage rather than the quantity of marriage. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, look at the leaders in the church, the elders, potential elders, and see if they are loving their wives, if they are cherishing their wives, if they are sacrificially caring for their wives. Are they mistreating their wives? That's a problem. 
This is what I mean by this. In, in a Baptist church, and a lot of Christian churches, then we take this as if you're divorced and you can't ever be an elder, but then they will choose someone who is mistreating their wives. Oh, their wife, not wives, but wife. You get the point here. Again, the Apostle Paul is focused primarily on the quality of marriage. So, friends, friends, as we are looking into eldership, are we holding these men high standard of loving their wives, leading their wives, cherishing their wives? And for you, who are not necessarily an elder, but you're a Christian, you are called to do the same thing. Man, you're called to be a one-woman man. And that means that you cherish your wife. You care deeply for your wife. You pray for your wife. And friends, I'm glad that the Apostle Paul mentions this, especially connecting this with a pastor. Because if you look around, most pastors, when they fall, they fall pertaining to this very issue. They fall because their eyes begin to drift They fall because they drift away from their wives, from loving their wives and cherishing their wives, to having affairs, to looking at other stuff, other women. And a lot of times, this is why we know pastors fall, right? Affairs or the love of money. These are two main reasons. So as pastors, we must guard against that. And you must pray for us to love our wives, to cherish them. It was said about Winston Churchill, who once attended a formal banquet in London where people asked this question. They asked, if you could be or if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? And as everyone would go around and and answer the question, everyone was excited to hear Churchill's answer. And when it was his turn, he, as an old man, he grabbed his wife's hand And he answered, he says, if I could not be who I am, I would most likely be. And here he paused. He took his wife's hand again. He says, Lady Churchill's second husband. (laughs) Very smart and clever man. (laughs) But yet he was devoted to his wife. History tells us how devoted he was to his wife. He loved her deeply and cared for her deeply. And friends, we ought to do the same. We ought to do the same. We ought to cherish love and care deeply. This is what Paul means by a one-woman man. One-woman man. He cherishes his wife. He leads his wife. He cares for his wife. Secondly, notice with me the second point. His self-mastery, right? He's self-mastery. Notice with me very carefully what he does here. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded and self-controlled, right? So the self-mastery here, he gives three qualities of self-mastery. What are they? Paul mentions that he must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Now, coming closer, this, this involves you as well. Not just elders, you as well. Sober-minded literally means wineless. In other words, he's not focused on being intoxicated physically with alcohol, which that's a problem, right? Drunkenness, and he'll talk about it later, that's a problem. But sober-minded 
Ness here pertains to a sense of being intoxicated with the world. So you're, you're not intoxicated by the things of the world, by the concerns of the world, by the trends in the world, by the narratives of the world. Let me give you a perfect example how we can not be sober-minded. All the different narratives that we find in this world, whether it's politics, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's gender identity, right? Whether it's feminism in the wrong way for sure, uh, whether it's abortion, and we follow the narratives of the world and we bring it to ourselves and instead of saying, okay, what does the word of God says about this? We find ourselves bothered by the narratives of the world. What the world is saying and what they're preaching, we're beginning to deconstruct who we are as Christians. So we say to ourselves, ah, you know, I think, I think the Bible says this, but I like what the world is saying about this. This is how we can be intoxicated by the things of the world. So when he says to be sober-minded, he's saying, do not be intoxicated by the narratives of the world, the things of the world. Set your mind on the things above. That when you hear all those narratives happening, all those trends are happening, we go to the Bible and we see what the Bible is saying and we believe the Bible. And you might say, well, Kevin, that's kind of narrow-minded, huh? Narrow is the way, but wide is the way. And many people go. We have to believe what Scripture says. So we must be sober-minded. So as an elder, as we are preaching about stuff and dealing with stuff, when we hear of all of those things happening, we, we look at the Bible and we preach what the Bible is saying to God's people. We don't come and change everything in the Bible to suit what people are saying out there. No, we believe the Bible. This is how we are called to be sober-minded. What else? As self-control the word literally means sensible, discipline. Carries the idea that you are disciplined within. There's a, there's a sense of knowing the sovereignty of God, and I rest upon God, no matter what's happening, that the pillow that you lay your heads on at night is the sovereignty of God that brings self-control in your heart. No matter what's happening around you, there is a sense of self-control. And that self-control comes from God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And then third, he says respectable. And respectable carries the idea of what is portrayed outwardly. So self-control is what we see inwardly. Respectable is what happens outwardly. It's our disposition. It's our words. It's how we act. And here, this is the same word that Paul used in chapter 2, verse 9, to describe how women are to dress. They are to be modest. And we can't say, well, modesty is just from inside. It definitely is, but modesty is also on the outside. How you dress. You don't cause a brother to stumble in the way you dress, right? So here, he uses the word respectable concerning an elder. So an elder, on the outward, he acts differently. He loves differently. He cares deeply. This is what he means by respectable. The self-mastery is an indispensable quality of a Christian leader. It is. 
The Lord has taught me over the years to deal with this. The friends in the church, as you know, as you deal with anyone, if any one of you who deal with people on a consistent basis know this, it's very messy to deal with people. It's messy to deal with my own self. Right? It's just very, very messy. And sometimes things are said to you or done to you that you find yourself wanting to act in the flesh. But we cannot. And over the years, the Lord has taught me to be gentle and to learn to lead with care. I've learned the importance of self-control. I'm still learning. Respectable. To be disciplined in that sense. Because it's very hard sometimes, right? And I love stories as I read about self-mastery from King David himself in 2 Samuel chapter 16. And this was a very encouraging passage of scripture as I was reading this in my quiet time. And King David, who was running in the desert for his life because King's, his son Absalom was pursuing him. And here is one of his enemies by the name of Shami or Shimi. And Shimi was as David was walking along the way, was just basically cursing David over and over and over and over again. And we see David practicing self-mastery. One word, Clay. One word, Lucas. He could have said to his soldier, go and kill this man, but he did not. He showed great care and love and patience and trust in the sovereignty of God. And this episode concludes in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 13 through 14. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed. And he went and threw stones at him and flung dust at David. This is King David. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. He did nothing to him. This is self-mastery, self-control. We can feel that someone might come against us, but guess what? We must love people dearly. So as an elder, we need to see that. Are they always combative? Are they always wanting to fight? Are they always wanting to kick people out of the church? Or are they willing to endure with people? Endure with people. Now, there is a time where we have to sit down and hold people accountable. There's no doubt we have to do this. But, friends, the hardest thing is to endure with people. So when you see your elders up here, don't just say to them they are soldiers where they're just kicking people out of the church. No, we need to love people deeply and endure with people. Because I would want you to endure with me. I'm a knucklehead as well. We all struggle. But we sit in the seat of a scoffer when we say, well, this one doesn't need to do this. This one, we need to do this to them. Listen, friends, we need to endure. We bring correction, but we endure. The third point here is his ministry. Paul mentions two qualities here that are important to elders' ministry. First, he must be hospitable, and then he must be able to teach. Do you see it yourself? 
The word hospitality literally means lovers of strangers. So the elder loves people, desire to serve people. He opens his house so people can come and enjoy a meal with him. These are all important things that an elder must do. He must be hospitable. He must serve people dearly. Not just an elder. You ought to do this. And we live in America today where we just like to be by ourselves, isolated, do what we want, never invite people to our home. But friends, listen to me. We need to change that about ourselves. If you really want to get to know someone, invite them to your house. Not just a restaurant. It's easy. I mean, invite you to a restaurant with me and eat a meal and that's it and we go. But man, when you come to my house, there is a level of you being comfortable that's different than being in a restaurant. You feel relaxed, and there's a reason why it's called home. <laughs> we love our homes. You feel relaxed. You can speak to people. You can enjoy people. This is what an elder is called to do, to open his home so people can come to show hospitality. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is a command in Scripture. Well, the great trait of an elder is seeing that he serves people. That's it. This holy ambition that he has, this aspiration that he has, is not for title. It's to serve people and to serve God. Serve people and serve God. In 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Yes. I love what Kent Hughes mentioned here. Coming closer Pay close attention to this and see this for yourself. Today's elder must be a joyous host. He must invite people to his table. His home must be open. Kent use is absolutely right. The next qualification here is that he must be able to teach. Now, coming closer, this is another qualification that perhaps not all of you have, right? Not perhaps. I know this. Not all of you are gifted with teaching. Now, I want to I preface by saying this. When God called you to be a Christian, God has given you the general sense of teaching, right? In, in a general sense, every single Christian is called to teach. And what I mean by that is, in a general sense, moms, you're called to teach your children about the Word of God. Dads, you're called to teach your family about the Word of God. You're called to do devotions with your family. This is commanded in Scripture. You're called to teach people about Christ as you're evangelizing about Jesus. So evangelism is a form of teaching as well. However, here specifically, the Apostle Paul is talking about the office of a teacher. Specifically, he is gifted, the gift of teaching, as it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians. So not all of us are given this gift. But specifically, elders are given this gift. And they are called to teach in the local church, to teach God's people, to give sound doctrines to God's people. As a matter of fact, friends, I want you to get this. The centerpiece of the church is the Word of God. As we begin to proclaim the Word of God, Jesus has given us His Word to stand upon and preach the most important work that an elder will do is to preach the word of God. So 
every single one of the brothers that will be an elder, we are to pray for them and encourage them to continue preaching the word of God. In Titus chapter 1 verse 9, it mentions, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instructions in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You see what an elder is supposed to do too. This is what he's supposed to do. Preach sound doctrine. Defend the faith. And we need more men to do this. <laughs> we need more people to do this. Defend the faith. But thank God for elders because this is what they're called to do. Friends, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, this is what he mentions. He says that God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. This is the office of a teacher. Now, in Greek, shepherds and teachers, there's no and here. The conjunction and is, is not here. It's pastor teachers. So a pastor teaches, a teacher pastors. So his pastor teacher is what he's talking about here. So he's called to teach and then in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 4, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This is why God has given us gifts in pastors and elders and teachers, so that we will not go to and through, tossing back and forth, with sound doctrine and false doctrine. No, the job of a teacher is to proclaim the word of God so you can come to it, right? In John Stott's book, Between Two Worlds, he mentions of Martin Luther that he gave <laughs> nine properties and virtues of a good preacher teacher. The first seven are fairly predictable. I'll list them for you. He says he should teach systematically which basically says he should teach the Bible word for word from verse 1 to the end of the verse. Teach systematically is what he's called to do, according to what Luther mentioned. He says also, have a ready wit, be eloquent, have a good voice and memory. Next, he should know when to make an end. <laughs> I know y'all praying for that right now. <laughs> He should be sure of his doctrine, is what Luther said. The eighth thing he says, he should believe in what he is preaching. In other words, Luther is focused on the ethos of the preacher in a sense that he is convicted tremendously about what he's preaching. So he preaches to himself first and then to the congregation. And then finally, and this is the reason why I'm bringing this up to you, the ninth priority, he says this, the risk of ridicule, the risk of losing his life, wealth, and name. This is what it means to be called to be a teacher of the word. I will stand on the word no matter what. You can imprison me. I stand on the word. I will not deviate from the word. And this is exactly what Luther is talking about. Notice me the fourth point here. His temperament. His temperament. 
You notice very carefully after the Apostle Paul has shared some great qualifications of this elder. He went on by sharing with us here in verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And he says, and not a lover of money. So notice his temperament. First, he says here, he's called not to be a drunkard. In other words, addicted to much wine. The Apostle Paul is not against drinking altogether. But what he is against is you being addicted to it. Being drunk. That's where it becomes a sin. And this is what scripture all throughout helps us understand about alcohol altogether. Drinking is not the problem. Getting drunk is the problem. Being addicted to it is the problem. And that's anything else. Anything that you're addicted to is a major issue. But here specifically, he talks about drunkenness. Drunkenness. But here, not only drunkenness is what the Apostle Paul is talking about, but he talks about violence. He says to abstain from that which is violent, but to be gentle. The word means, gentle here means to a giver of blows. <laughs> In other words, this is a great example of one who is not quarrelsome, but one who is gentle with people. In other words, the style of an elder is one that is gentle. One that deals with people in a good way, not a violent way. Friends, come in closer and get this, get this, get this, get this, get this. This is the disposition of Jesus Christ as well. Notice that when they came against him, how gentle he was. That he was one to lead people and guide people and persevere. And this is one of the problems that we have in our culture today. We just, we don't like to wait. So if we see something happening, all of a sudden we feel we just need to take care of it. But listen, we're dealing with hearts and we need to be gentle with people. I've had situations upon situations happen and people are like, well, Kevin, why, why is this person still at the church? Why, why is this person still doing this? Why, why is this person... And, and friends, honestly and truthfully, I, I would rather... It's easy. It's easy. And in my disposition, it's easy. I have no problem with confrontation. If any of you guys know me, you know I have no problem with confrontation. I don't like confrontation, but I, don't, I have no problem with it. But you know the biggest thing for me? is learning gentleness. And that's what God is teaching me, is to be gentle, to be very introspective when things happen, to ask yourself, okay, okay, God, how can I deal with this in the right way? How can I approach this person and making sure that this person knows that I love them and you love them? This is what we want from elders. We don't want elders who are quick to pull the trigger. Or you do something, ah, pow, you're dead. Like, no, we don't want that. We, we want elders who can come alongside of you and help you, yes, be firm, yes, hold you accountable, but persevere with you. That's what I would want in my life. And here specifically, he's talking about one who is not quarrelsome, but one who is gentle. One who is gentle. In Dwight Pentecost's commentary on the book of Philippians, he refers to an occurrence, something that happened with this huge church split, which happened in Texas. 
The church split was so bad that it made its way to the Supreme Court. <laughs> when it made its way to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court says, we don't want to mess with this. This is a church, so let the church deal with it. And the church split in half. So half of the church was with this young man, and the other half was with this one elder. So a news reporter, in a local news reporter, decided, you know what, I just want to find out what's going on. And she found out exactly why the church split. It split because an elder at a meal, a function that they were having, saw that this young boy was given a large portion of food, larger than his portion. So he made a big fuss about it. He got so mad that it caused a church split. Can you imagine this? But that happened. It sounds so petty, but these things happen on a consistent basis in local churches. Friends, an elder is not called to be that way. We're called to serve. What the elder should have said is like, you want more food, buddy? You can have mine, <laughs> right? But rather he's fighting over someone who has a larger portion of food than him. That's entitlement. That's a power trip. It's not what God is calling for elders to be. We serve the flock and care deeply for the flock. Gentleness is the elders' approved style. It was the style of Jesus. He's called to be gentle and humble in heart. So pray. Pray for your elders. Pray for me. Pray that I will be gentle, be humble. I struggle with pride. I struggle with these things, but pray, please pray, that I can learn to be more gentle. And here specifically in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, it says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently endure an evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. You see why we ought to be gentle? Because at the end of the day, it's not like I just want this person out of my life. Like the world says, any toxic person, get them out. No, Christians, what we ought to do is to pray deeply for someone that we feel is coming against us. We still pray for them. Pray that God will grant them repentance. Repentance. Matthew Arnold coined the translation, sweet reasonableness. When he talks about gentleness and not quarrelsome, he calls it sweet reasonableness. And finally, friends, he's called to handle his money. His handling of money. If you notice very carefully, he says he must not be a lover of money. The reason why he does what he does is not because of money, but it's because of the glory of God. That he will do whatever he can to provide for his family, provide for the church if he has to, but he is not one to love money. We see the problem here, right? The problem that we see in our culture is the prosperity gospel says on a consistent basis that you need larger and larger churches to get more and more money. But at the end of the day, we see that when, when God calls a preacher, that he's called primarily to serve God and to serve people. Now, with that said, does it mean that a pastor should not be get paid? No, we have scripture upon scripture of the church caring for their pastor. And what I've always said to the church leaders, and they could testify and attest to this, I've always said this to them. If you care for my family, 
I will care deeply for the church. And what I mean by that is, I do not want to consistently worry about how to provide for my family, as I'm consistently concerned about the problems within the church and dealing with the church. And, and, and we can meet this halfway. I never have to worry about money. And the church has been so good for me, to me. I don't, I don't worry about it. We have a second job with my boys where I'm making some extra money to provide for my family, but I could promise you this much. I'm not concerned about money. The church is faithful to care for me and my family. I am faithful to care for you guys. And God is faithful to care for me. And I'm thankful for that. But I also know the problem for many pastors is the love of money. They leave churches to go to bigger and bigger and larger and larger churches to make more and more money. That should never be the case. The case for us, friends, for every elder and any elder is to love God and love God's people. So he tells us here, what are the qualifications of an elder? The qualification of an elder is he must watch over his marriage. He must watch over his ministry, his temperament, self-mastery, right? And handling money. These are all great qualifications here. So as we look at this, as we pray for our elders, friends, I want to encourage you as well to think deeply about your own life. Think about your own life. Are you loving your wife or your husband like you ought to? Are you more focused on the quality of marriage than anything else? What about self-mastery? Is there self-control? Are you respectable? What about your ministry altogether? You're called to minister. Maybe not specifically to the, the, the office of a teacher, or you might not have the gifting of a teacher, but you're called to evangelize in a general sense. And what about money? This is the one that grip a lot of us, right? Are you a lover of money? Are you a lover of money? Everything you do is about money, 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 money. Money brings you happiness. But friends, you should not. Do not allow money to grab your hearts. Allow God to grab your heart. This is exactly what Jesus mentions. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So guess what? If your treasure is money, then that's where your heart is, according to what Jesus is saying. Will you turn from that? Will you give all to Jesus? Will you serve Jesus? And as we think about the elders and pray for the potential elders, will you continue to encourage them and see these things and affirm these things in their lives? Join me as we pray together. Father, thank you, O Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for who you are and what you're doing in our hearts, in our lives. And none of us are perfect. We have a lot of growing to do. But God, I'm thankful that we can pursue holiness and righteousness. You've called us to pursue it. You've called us to see Scripture for what it is, God. You've called us to be sober-minded and not violent, but yet gentle. Forgive us, God, when we have failed in these things and call us to pursue it even more. Pursue you, Father. In your mighty and precious name, amen, amen, and amen.